Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. In May 2020, George Floyd was murdered by police in Minnesota. Within the same week, Christian Cooper, a black man, avid birder, and member of the New York City Audubon Society, was out birding in Central Park when a white woman called the New York City police on him after he asked her to leash her dog. In her phone call to police, she portrayed Cooper as a threatening black man. As these events unfolded simultaneously, many people working in outdoor and environmental spaces reckoned with the traditional centering of white experiences in nature and the role that systemic racism has played in the environmental movement. In her book, Black Faces, White Spaces, Reimagining the Relationship of African Americans to the Great Outdoors, Dr. Carolyn Finney explores why African Americans are underrepresented in environmental movements. In this River Talk, Cumberland River Compact Executive Director Mikhail Houghton joins Carolyn Finney for a conversation on the historic and lived experiences that have brought us to where the environmental movement is today and how we can build a more inclusive, equitable, and just future. Dr. Carolyn Finney is a storyteller, author, and cultural geographer whose work aims to develop greater cultural competency within environmental organizations, challenge media outlets on their representation of difference, and increase awareness of how privilege shapes who gets to speak to environmental issues and determine policy and action. She is currently a scholar-in-residence at Middlebury College's Franklin Environmental Center. Carolyn, thanks for so much for joining us today. Um, we we know that talking about systemic racism and the environment um, can be exhausting, and so we appreciate you joining us for this conversation. Glad to be here. I uh, just watched your TED talk, and you talk a lot about your own experience and your family background and your upbringing, and I recommend it to all listeners. It's it's. It's, it's so enjoyable and informative to hear you talk. Can you give us a little bit of an overview about how this shaped your understanding of the Black experience in the outdoors? Yeah, I can. Thank you, I'm Kale. I, um, the primary reason I tell my story a lot is because we're all situated. We all have a story about where we start from. So I partly do it because it invites others to actually kind of own where they're at and how we're situated. And also that all knowledge is subjective, right? So we're always looking through our own eyes at the world. And so I have bias just like everyone else, right? And so I tell that story in part to give people, it's an invitation for other people to do the same with their own. But I also tell the story because it has a very particular, um, it tilts a very particular way because I'm African-American and I grew up in a black family at a particular time here in the US and that means something. Um, so I, when I tell the story of my parents who were, grew up poor and black in the South in Virginia, you know, in the 50s coming to New York 
after my dad got out of the Korean War, looking for a job, you know, I tell people that he had two job offers, one he could be a janitor in Syracuse, New York, and the other was a job he eventually took, which was 30 minutes outside of New York City. And it was a 12-acre estate belonging to a very wealthy Jewish family that needed somebody to live on that land full time. And that property had a swimming pool, a lake, vegetable gardens, fruit trees. It's a stunning piece of property. And so my parents took that job and my dad was also the chauffeur. My mom was a sometime housekeeper. When they thought they wanted to have kids and what I always say is, you know, they um, thought they couldn't have kids so they adopted me. But then after that, they did some relaxing and had my first brother followed by my second brother a few years later. And so we grew up on this estate and this estate was in an all white, very wealthy neighborhood. So there were a lot of big estates. Harry Winston had property down the street and Schaefer, Schaefer Beer was next door. There was a golf course right around the corner. Um, and we were the only family of color there. So there were two things always happening. One, it was like uh, during the week, the original owners weren't usually there. They usually only came there on the weekends. So it was like we had our own little private park. You know, by the time I was seven years old, I knew how to swim. We had to know how to swim because we were on a property that had bodies of water. And my parents made sure we had swimming lessons at the local Y or down at the beach so that if we fell in, we weren't in view, you know, we could save ourselves. And I loved playing outside all the time. My brothers and I did this all the time. And also we were the only family of color in that neighborhood. So the other story I always tell is I went to a public school there in Mamaroneck and I talked, you know, I was in fourth grade and I was walking home from school and I was right around the corner from the house and there were always policemen patrolling this neighborhood. So a policeman, he was in his car, he stopped me, he wanted to know where I was going. Now keep in mind, I was nine, so fourth grade, uh, and I told him, I gave him the address and I was literally right around the corner from it. And he said, oh, do you work there? And I remember, at least when I reflect on it, thinking like, that's a really strange question. And what I said was, no, I live there. Like, I'm nine, you know, what's, what's up? And when I told my family, my parent, my father got really angry and called the police station. And they never bothered me and my brothers again. But as an adult, you know, how many of us have heard those stories? How many of us have experienced those stories? Uh, there, were no, there was no logic there. I didn't know what the, what the logic was that he saw a little girl with her school bag that he would question why I'm there. And the only reason I could be there is if I worked there. So in this beautiful outdoor surroundings, trees and woods and, you know, a little fishing pond, that there was no other way that I could be there. And so that incident more than any other, you know, that I can reflect on, there was a lot of them of what it meant to live in this beautiful surroundings that I was both privileged to do, but I understand there, my family had no ownership whatsoever. My parents worked there for someone else. And so 50 years of them working there on that land, when the original owners passed away, and before they did, the matriarch was still alive in the 90s when she was sick and said she realized if she died, what was going to happen to my family who'd been on that land for so long. And she tried to keep them there. That was, uh, that was an idea that her grown children, I, I understand, said no, but also to understand this property was worth over $3 million and the property taxes were $125,000 a year. So instead she had a house built for them in Leesburg, Virginia. And she passed away with my father at her bedside. 
the new owner came on, but my parents stayed on until 2003 because they still needed to find a new family. Somebody's got to be, you know, caretaking that estate. Even if the owner lives there all the time, he or she are not, you know, they're not out there taking care of the land, right? They eventually found a family from the Dominican Republic to move in, and my parents left in 2003. And while they have a beautiful house in Leedsburg, it's on only about a half an acre of land. And I watched my dad in particular get quite distressed and depressed about missing the land and talking about it that way. Um, and for myself and my brothers, we can never go back there. So, you know, I joke around with people all the time and say, yeah, I, you know, I had these dreams of I'll win the lotto or it's going to be like the movies and, and I'm going to buy the estate and Okay, so far, none of that has happened. I want all your listeners to know. So, um, I'm still holding out hope that some miracle is going to happen. But, it, you know, I make light of it because, you know, at, at the end of it, I'm actually quite sad about it. We can never go home again. And now that there's a conservation easement that's been placed on the estate. So it's called the Giffen um, Conservation Easement because of the new owner. And... Uh, you know, in the early 2000s, when all the neighbors got a letter about that conservation easement, um, which means that in perpetuity, nothing can be changed on that piece of land. Somebody sent a copy of that letter to my parents. I got a copy of that letter, which I still have. And it's about a, a page and a half long with all the images of the estate and talking about the wildlife on the estate and all the environmental values of the estate and where it sits in the watershed and why it's important to protect it in perpetuity. And in the end, it thanked the new owner for his conservation mindedness. So the letter has, you know, all the board of directors and all the fancy names. It's the Westchester Conservation Land Trust. And when it thanked the new owner for his conservation mindedness, the thing that really struck me was not that he'd only been on the land at that point for about three years, but the fact that there was nothing thanking my parents who'd actually cared for it full time for 50 years. And this doesn't make those folks bad people, but this is when I always say how privilege has the privilege of not seeing itself. So to recognize that they just erased in terms of the environmental history, the last 50 years or so of that property have been erased. The people who've labored on it, the people who loved it, the people who were actually there full time every single day were gone. And I started thinking about that around the country. So this really no pun intended, colors my own perspective about who we see and don't see. You know, even when we think about the mainstream environmental movement and what that movement historically has looked like. And oftentimes we jump to a myth of, you know, well, black people don't, they don't do certain things as it relates to the environment. And, you know, the largest voting block for environmental issues are African-Americans. That's what people don't understand, the black caucus. Right, that is the largest voting block, right, in terms of pro-environmental issues. So there's so many myths that we've, you know, we've put there, and that's being gentle and kind. I mean, and, and it, because for me, it's all caught up in the questions of everything from the fact that all this land was stolen from Native people, that we enslaved another group of people to work this land for free, and then we just free fall after that through history about to this moment where we are right now, still addressing a lot of the very same issues. Yeah. But I, and for me, we're, we're addressing them a lot more fervently that we, than we have been in recent times. It's, so. it's a fascinating story of, you know, how 
personal, your professional life is and the kind of passion and lo love of that land shifting a little bit. So yeah. during the time of coronavirus, and many, many environmental groups started taking the opportunity to tout the outdoor spaces for peace and healing. But, but you share in your work that um, that isn't always the case. It's not for African-Americans. It's not always a peaceful place. It's not always a place of he healing. And can you go into a little bit more teasing that apart for us? Yeah, I think for me it is, and I don't think this is only true for African-Americans. The idea that couple of things that the outdoor, the outdoors, you know, nature outside of ourselves is something that's incredibly complex, right? And the environment doesn't sit separately in its own vacuum from everything else that goes on in this country. So historically for 400 years, right, we have conversations with things like uh, we legislate behavior. So Jim Crow segregation is legislated behavior that non-white in particular black folks could not do and go to the same places as white people. The outdoors wasn't off limits for that. That wasn't like the magical fantasy that you could, oh, I'm gonna get away from segregation today, so I'm gonna go over here to the park. You, that's the whole point that I've always tried to make that they're blended together. It's unfortunate in so many, for so many reasons, but not the least of which is that there is something, some type of spiritual renewal that I believe is possible in the outdoors. I do believe in terms of your health and just having breath and the sense of what freedom might actually look like for yourself, that going on a walk in the woods, it can be really powerful or, or spending the day by the ocean can be really powerful. And the point being, not everyone has always had access to that, you know, in the same way. I mean, in the South, the beaches were, you know, you had to, if there was a black beach, you had to, you know, go to the black beach if you were black, if there was one. I mean, to, and to think about this, right, and how it was true no matter if you were famous and rich or if you weren't famous and rich, if you were just regular working folks while wanting to be in the outdoors, which doesn't mean that black people didn't have intense, deep, and spiritual relationships with the outdoors, right? So that's the complexity. It doesn't mean that, that that experience for them didn't exist or for us didn't exist. It just existed differently. So this is gonna seem like I'm going off book, but I'm really not. So right now on HBO, there's a, a new series called Lovecraft Country and it's HP Lovecraft and it's uh, Jordan Peele is the producer who did Us and Get Out. And the idea focuses on this sort of small group of black folks, they're kind of family and friends, who in the 50s, I believe that it's set in the 50s, and it kind of based around the Chicago area, but Massachusetts always comes in. Now, the reason I'm telling you this, so Lovecraft, so there's this whole horror, you know, piece to it. And, and I kind of love that, and your listeners may not love that, but that's not why I'm telling you this. For me, when I watched the first episode, what was so powerful it showed, so, so these three adult black individuals who are friends and family, they're gonna make this car journey from Chicago to Massachusetts. The job of the patriarch in the car was, I mean, his job, he made a living, he worked on the Green Book, right? He just called it the travel guide. So the Green Book was that guide, I believe it was a US postal worker who put it together saying, if you're black, here's where you can drive. Here's where you can stay. Here's where you can stop. You've got to think about it. 
But they didn't make this, the, the show was not about that. But what it showed was these are the things they have to consider. So as they're packing up in the car, his wife isn't coming with them. She has a checklist. She says, do you have a first aid kit? Like you have all these things. And they're excited about this adventure. But as black people, they have to think about it differently. They are no less excited about it on the road. There's a whole scene where they are driving through a sundown town. And sundown towns are places, were places, may still be in some areas of the country, places where you better not be black after sundown. And this becomes woven into the story because they're right at the edge of a county that's sundown and it's, you know, why a police officer pulls them over, it's gonna be a bad scene, right? So it was a story about, that was a horror story because monsters actually did come out of the woods at some point, but it's also the horror of racism and how for these black folks, they are no less excited to be adventurous. They're no less heroic. They're no less, they're doing all the things as human beings that you see us do like in scary situations, but they're also black. And mm -hmm. so while those moments don't define them, it certainly informs who they are and how they can operate in that space. And it was, it so blew me away because I said, that's what we need to see more of that it is when you tell a story, I can tell a story of growing up on that estate and I can talk about the funny games I played out there. I, I my first pet was a pet duck and I have a whole story. I can tell a lot of those stories and I'm sure a lot of your listeners would be like, oh yeah, you know, that's funny and I can relate and that's good. But I also tell the story about getting stopped by the cop. I also have other stories like that, that some of your listeners may not relate to and be like, you know, like it, it, it almost doesn't mesh. It's like, wait a minute, you're, cause you're like us like this, but over here like this, this is happening. So for me, the power of telling these stories through that lens, I almost forgot what you had asked me because I was so wrapped up in telling you um, about Lovecraft Country to tell you about it, how powerful it is for that not to be what the story is about. But you can't tell that story in any authentic way without having that in there that influences them. But they were no less adventurous and heroic. Does that make sense? Oh yes, it just adds like you know so much poignancy to the whole issue. I think. Yeah. So you know, I love movies, and I, and the issue of representation, I think about a lot in terms of black and brown stories and experiences. And so sometimes the things that um, you know, your listeners are going to go, "What is she talking about here?" But the whole Alien Predator series. There was one called Alien versus Predator, which wasn't a great film, but what I loved about it. The opening scene was the black actress, Sanaa Latham, ice climbing by herself in Nepal. Now, I've lived in Nepal, I love Nepal. Nobody's ice climbing in Nepal and they're especially not doing it by themselves. Like that's not happening. There's something not realistic about that. But the power was that she, be, she was the heroine at the center of the story and she's a black woman ice climbing in the Himalaya and why not? You know, she was the one that's gonna be the guide. I said, that, that casting for me, that I could barely concentrate on the rest of the movie. Because <laughs> I was so, just like, yeah, because when I watch a movie, I, you know, I often want to see myself as the hero or the heroine. I want to see myself at the center of that experience. Like, I'm deep in the story, no matter who's playing it, imagining, well, what if it was me? You know, I love sci-fi, and I said, the thing that always freaks me out is time travel, because if I have to be in this skin, I can't figure out any place I'd want to go back to in time. Oh, time travel backwards. 
<laughs> they do it all the time in the movies. Well, yes. white, white characters do it all the time. And sometimes you see gender differential, like if a woman, like if she goes back to the medieval days or something, but if a black person is going back, like what part, what time am I going back to? I, ew. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm African American, I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm like going, I don't know if I want to be going back. Forward looks good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Forward looks good. Um, can you talk about some of the people who have been left out of the history of environmentalism that you you think should be included? You talk a little bit about whose stories need to be told, um, and I wonder if there are any real individual examples that you can tell us about. There are so many, actually, I would say. And so anything that I say here is just going to be the list. There's, there's the easy pickings for me, you know, when I think of people like Maveen Betch, John Francis, who spent 22 years walking across the U.S. to raise environmental awareness, and he did it for 17 years without talking. Um, he has an organization called Planet Walk, and he has a book called Planet Walker. Um, Maveen came from a family of very well-to-do African-Americans who lived on Amelia Island off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida in the 40s and 50s. And actually her sister is very well known in academic circles, it's Jonetta Cole. Maveen is known as the beach lady, so if you look her up. Um, and when she grew up there, you know, even though they had a lot of money, they couldn't go to the same beach as white people. And so her great-great-grandfather, A.L. Lewis, who had made a lot of money in life insurance in Jacksonville, said, if we can't go to the same beach, he's going to buy a beach. And so he bought a beach on Amelia Island, and it's called American Beach, and it's still there. And at the time, you know, you could be a black janitor or a judge and you could have a house on the beach. There's sand dunes, it's lovely. And so this is how she grew up. And she went to Oberlin College, she went to Germany, became an opera singer for a number of years. And then she became really interested in environmental causes. And the thing I tell people is that she came back and gave all her wealth away to environmental causes, over $750,000. And when I say gave away all her wealth, I don't mean she wrote a nice check and then went back to her comfortable home. She gave away the house that had been bequeathed to her, her great-grandfather, to environmental causes. She was living for a while on a chaise lounge on the beach <laughs> until her sister, as I understand it, brought her a trailer, a home to move into, which she did. And so I talk a lot about how she really fought to protect that strip of American beach because there's maritime forest. It sits in between two beach resorts. Developers were chomping at the bits to get at that, that piece. And she got local people on board. She worked with the park service to protect the sand dunes. And, you know, I often, you know, I find myself in pre-pandemic times um, on a plane and in a room with people telling them these stories stories about Mabine, and still there's so many people who haven't heard about her. There's been a film made about her, books written, you can Google her, but the thing is, I'm not blaming people for that, but I really point out who do we and who does the mainstream environmental movement promote, you know, in, in terms of that she's kind of really showing up in very particular ways. And for her, it wasn't just about the environment. It was also about the African-American history and story in place in relationship with the environment and how important that is actually to understand that um, as well. Uh, again, and I said, John Francis, who spent all that time walking across the US, but we have a lot of people today, I mean, who are also really actively involved today. Audrey and Frank Peterman have been doing this, oh my gosh, around national parks. African-Americans in national parks. She'd written her second book. 
you know, a lot of these folks are not in there or in the traditional sense showing up in the traditional spaces, right? To do this work, they're doing it anyway and regardless. Rue Map started Outdoor Afro, it's now a national organization. You know, if I'm thinking only African-American, Angelou Azilio is based in Atlanta, started greening youth and, and, and channels interns to work with various conservation groups around the country. The thing that I say to people is, you can look up individuals, but also you can, you can also sort of look more broadly out. Often we, you know, all of us are really busy. We get given certain stories and people and we pay attention to them and we don't pay attention to others. There's also something about the expectation who we expect to see so we get surprised when we see somebody who looks a little different from the usual. Magazines and stories that are promoted, some of them are starting to change and expand a little bit. One of them told me lately, one of the magazines, Orion, Orion Magazine is a wonderful magazine. They're taking a big left turn yeah. because they, you know, they, they realize, they realize that, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to say it as they've said it to me of the white man on his own doing the thing out in nature is just not the story to be telling. Actually, my response was not that they shouldn't be telling it. They should just be telling a lot of different kinds of stories. That story also has relevance for people. We have the capacity to tell all those stories. It's just what we center as being normal and as the story all the rest of us have to try to assimilate to, or we become absolutely invisible in the story. We become the thing you can't see. It's like, oh, we aren't there. And how that rolls down the hill to well-meaning efforts of saying that they're going to do outreach to you know, these folks of color so that they can have this experience, which assumes that they don't already have an experience. Right? It assumes that they already don't have an experience and outreach is about a power dynamic because if I get to outreach to you, it means I may have a good heart, but I also have the resources and I get you and I bring you to where I'm at and I sit you down where I'm at and you have to learn everything about the table I'm around and I don't actually have to learn anything about you. So nothing shifts on my end. I just made a little space for you to come in and assimilate as opposed to a relationship of reciprocity, which actually then means I have to change too because now oh, I didn't, I didn't know that about you. Or I never had to think that way because my experience of the world has always been normalized and placed at the center. And what you're telling me is that's not the same for you. What my center has been this whole time isn't actually, isn't really the center. <laughs> it's just my experience. Yeah, you know, I think as environmental organizations, we're, we're just, you know, we're struggling with the journey for sure. And, and I think speaking on behalf of the Cumberland River Compact, so leery of falling into some kind of, of the situation that you're describing. So we have representation on our board, but what does that mean about the organization internally? Besides we have representation, does it mean that we've done the hard work of moving the table is what we say here. Like, don't welcome people to the table, move the table. Um, and, and so it's, it's easy for, I think, for environmentalists to think, well, I'm a good liberal, you know, I vote Democrat, I'm, I'm not racist, and to leave it at that. And the, but the deeper searching, you can, you know, you find ways that 
you are not breaking down the systemic racism and that there are, there's much more action that we can take. I often say to groups and people that I work with, this is one of the most challenging groups to work with, and I mean this in a very gentle way, is actually the liberal people who, who actually claim a kind of wokeness. And it doesn't mean that that's not, none of those things are true, but it goes right to what you said was, we've done, we already do this, so we've already done. We don't actually have to, for me, everybody here has to do the work. Everybody has to do the work. And there is no end goal. The process, it is an ongoing process. Um, and it may be doing more than moving the table. You may just have to get rid of the table and, and yeah. rebuild it, right? I mean, that's sometimes, the, that's sometimes the case. The beautiful thing is you don't have to do it by yourself, right? Because there's a lot of folks out here who I would say, those of us who have just, we've always been uncomfortable. Because we, we've always been having to do this all the time like so it, we actually have some skills you know about you know come on down let's you know so i would say to people we have some skills about how do you negotiate that and the excitement actually i mean i know that you know particularly at this moment you know with everything that's happening around us here in the u.s in particular that it is often and for me too it's often the human need to grasp onto what we know the whole foundation seems unstable so how do we, you know, and sometimes cement ourselves even more than we mean to. Uh, and I think that is an, it's almost an appropriate reaction. Like I, I understand that as a, a fellow human being right in this moment. I also know that there's something really potent about this moment. If there was ever a chance to really say like, okay, we may stumble, stumble. You know, stumbling is better than not moving. <laughs> stumbling is better than not moving because something is happening. There's, a, there's a, an attempt. You know what, because I tell everybody, you will make mistakes. I can guarantee it. You know why? Because you're human. <laughs> it's going to happen, you know. For me, it is not the, let's try not to make a mistake, so much as what will you do when you've made that mistake? How do you show up anyway and attend to the impact of that mistake? That, for me, where you start to build trust relationship, respect, and experience about who you want to be and how you want to be differently, right, in this moment. And it's messy. We can see it. Who, who among us thought that there was going to be a pandemic? And who among us thought there was going to be a pandemic? And then sort of a, 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 a deep consciousness rising up around systemic racism at the same time during an election year. I want to know, was anybody thinking about this? <laughs> Who knew that all these things were going to be, and we're not even done. We're just in September, folks. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? We're, we're right here. And it is incredibly hard and messy. And a lot, you know, people have lost their lives in multiple ways. People mm -hmm. have lost their lives from, from the virus. People have lost their lives as they've always done, you know, um, simply by being black on the street. <laughs> People are losing their lives, they're losing their jobs, they're losing their sense of who they are in their community. This is upheaval. I think if you look up in the dictionary under upheaval, it's gonna say, oh yeah, I think this fits really well. So and we're here. Part of the other side of upheaval is what comes out of that. So around this work, around the environment, thinking about race and racism, thinking about how do we build relationship across difference? Thinking about who we say we are 
and who we actually want to be and what does that require? I mean, for me, this is, this is what keeps me so passionate about it because I'm thinking this is an opportunity and that I don't mean to be opportunistic, but it is. I mean, if there was ever one that said flashing, flashing lights, you know, <laughs> this is it. And so, and nothing about it is easy. There is nothing in my opinion about this that is easy. Thanks to the supporters of the Cumberland River Compact who helped bring our podcast to listeners. We would also like to thank Keen Footwear for their support of the Cumberland River Compact's youth education programs. Since 2014, Keen Effect grants have brought thousands of youth outside for recreation, nature-based education, and environmental stewardship, actively building a future full of formative experiences and lasting values built in nature. Do, do you see anything arising out of um, Christian Cooper birding in um, Central Park um, and the, you know, the video that came out of the, the woman calling the police on him? You know, I think there was an increased awareness. Nothing has stopped. You know, we've had more killings, but I think that that really struck a chord with the environmental community and i was wondering what you yeah. observed that you know so i tell your your listeners that before pre-pandemic i was mostly on a plane every week you know i give talks i have these conversations different parts of the country sometimes out of the country so and i thought my life was really busy until the christian cooper amy cooper event happened you know within days of george floyd and I am busier than I've ever been, but I'm not going anywhere. It is crazy around these conversations. One of the things that I think that's happened with the environmental community, some, some of it I just think is timing. Two days later that George Floyd was murdered. So I got a call from the Guardian right after, it was like at the, right in that crux when they said when Christian Cooper went birding in Central Park and Amy Cooper weaponized his skin color against him, um, by threatening to call the police. They asked me to write about Christian Cooper. And because they said, oh, you wrote this book, Black Faces, that you talk about the environment. The thing I've been talking about for years, every time I, is I'm always connecting and saying, the environment does not exist in a vacuum. It's like I said at the, at the beginning of our conversation here today, all this stuff is always there. With, when George Floyd then got murdered, and, and I insisted on writing the article about both, People can see it now. They could, if they weren't seeing it before, so I think that's partly what has happened. That if it had just been Christian Cooper and George Floyd hadn't been murdered, you know, which would be the better thing ultimately, you know, for him and his family. But if that event hadn't happened publicly in the way it did, I don't know if it would have hit quite the same way. There was something about those two things, and then of course, then it's Breonna Taylor before. Now it's Jacob Blake. It's always been that constant, but there was something about those two things that for the environmental community, because I saw my work life and my life actually just, it exploded in the way that people in the environmental, if they weren't doing it before, they're doing it now. And I think it's harder to avoid it. I'm not saying people were trying to avoid it, but thinking they didn't have to talk about it because they're, they're seeing that overlap, you know, that it, it's always been overlapped.
It was never, you know, the fact that Christian Cooper as an African-American gay man and a birder, you know, sits on the board for Audubon, one of the biggest environmental organizations in terms of name recognition in this country. And they and them saying that, that he went to Harvard and that I also make the point that none of that should actually matter. <laughs> That's the other point. He could be homeless and it's, we still should have the same, you know, collective reaction of that this is really a problem, right? I don't, we wouldn't have had the same collective reaction. I'm just going to say it, but <laughs> we should. But the fact that he sat on Audubon and he was a birder, all those things provided entry points for people who hadn't, I think, thought about it in that way. And to be honest with you, for some who just didn't want to have to think about it, but now they do. Now it's there in, in their face. I think it will be en enduring motivation to, to change? I, you know, that's such a big question. So, you know, in my own, anecdotally, in my own life, I, I've really never worked this much in my own, I mean, uh, running workshops, giving talks, groups that I never, I mean, it is just companies, groups. So companies that do that stuff, it impacts the environment. Individuals, calls from Germany, Norway. It is just, it has so, it, it's just, I'm like, wow, people are having this guy in a way that they've been having it pretty steadily from my perspective over the last, you know, six, seven years. But there's something about this moment. Having said that, I think that a lot of organizations, part of the realization is that what, what does deep change look like and what does it demand is actually overwhelming. So there are individuals who are saying, you know, come in and they'll have their moment, they'll have their day and their afternoon. The question is, what are they doing after that? Then there are other companies, I was just on a Zoom call right before this with a company a small company that's an all white company. And they're, you know, after I did a thing with them a few weeks back, they have a plan for the year. Like they're creating a guide because they understand that actually this isn't a one-off. Not if you're really doing it. It means you're always doing it. I started two days ago, this uh, um, fast metabolism diet for 28 days. I had no caffeine. This is my second day. I have never had no caffeine, like in 40 years, 60, I, you know, I don't even know. I, when I was a kid, I had no caffeine. That's the last time I had no caffeine. I feel like I don't even understand what's happening with my body, <laughs> you know, but I know this is really good for me. And I know it is. I know something. So I'm, I'm going to continue this thing. I'm just on day two, but I'm like, what is happening? I think that's how it is. And I imagine it for a lot of environmental organizations and companies that have a lot of good people who are thoughtful, who are smart, who are talented, but have not a, not a real good understanding of really what it's like to come from that different experience, that different you know, point of view, and aren't quite sure what to do about it. And they're diving in, and it feels like I've had no caffeine for a few days. I'm not eating the stuff in the order I have to drink. How much water do I have to drink? 80, like what? I can't, you know, I'm always going to the bathroom. I'm saying all this stuff because I actually think the parallel is actually really similar. The things I said before aren't really, can I say that now? Uh, how do I write up that? Do we have to get different people in the room? So how do we represent our, the picture Oh, are we supposed to be doing? I don't even know what to do. do. Do we have to hire somebody? How do I, you know what? I just need to take a break because I'm exhausted. I have a headache. Um, I don't know what's happening. I'm stressed. 
because it's so unfamiliar. I don't know what to, how to take care of myself and show up appropriately. I'm, some things are getting revealed about myself that I didn't think were true, <laughs> you know? And I say all of that to say that that is actually appropriate reaction. <laughs> and so, you know, I believe because I'm an optimist and I, I couldn't do this work if I didn't believe that there was the potential for change. There always is. We we're always in a state of change. The, the change within us is a matter of choice. The change outside of us is something else. We can change how we engage with it. But we have agency. And for me, it's just a matter of our will and our clarity and our vision and our fearlessness, right? Not, yes, and you get, you, you hire the people, you work with people, you self-educate. I mean, it, it's going to take time. And I recognize that in some situations, people are going to continue to die. So there's a continuum also. And I think of it as Christian Cooper on one end of that continuum, when we're talking about systemic racism, particularly as it relates to the environment, and George Floyd on the other end. And a lot of us walk that continuum all the time. So the worst case scenario is you can be killed. But on the other parts of that continuum, it's that daily insecurity. Even when you seem to be following the rules and doing what other people are doing, you can get called out. You can get called out. You can get dismissed. You can get, I've been called out so many times in my life. And a lot of that call out is not necessarily unfriendly, but it's, can I touch your hair? How do you do your hair? Where are you from? Are you, you must be mixed. People I don't know, like on planes, on the street. And I want to be really clear, white people who will come up to me and I've had it my entire life. I'm an incredibly friendly person, but there's moments where I'm just like, what? I would never go up to anyone I don't know and ask this question, is that a wig you're wearing? Because that reminds me of a, something I saw in a Halloween store on a mask. Oh, I've had it all said, you know. My dear, I didn't think you were real. I thought you were an Indian statue standing there. I, I've had it all. <laughs> and also the less friendly things said. I mean, the things that are considered offensive, you know. To really understand. Um, do you, do you think that's sort of the objectification of you know, of your body, your, yourself? Yes, and I think it's something deeper. There's something about, you know, at a real basic human level, many, most of us are curious. And as somebody who's had been privileged enough to go all over the world and, and meet and see people who don't look like me and engage in cultures that are different from mine, you know, I love the, I love the thrill of, meeting somebody different, seeing something different, there's something. Mm -hmm. But I would still. <laughs> Better <laughs> manners. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, there's, and so when I think about this country, there's manners, but there's also, and I say also gently, there's also entitlement. Thing that I've been saying to, you know, some white folks, colleagues and friends, I say the thing that I have empathy for is that I can't imagine what it feels like to be you at this moment. Like to, to be, you know, at a place where your world, I'm not saying you haven't had hardships. I haven't not saying you've never worked hard. All those things are, is not what I'm saying, but you've lived in a world that has been constructed in such a way 
that your view of the world is normalized and centralized and everybody else's view of the world is not. The rest of us have had to duck and weave to kind of be seen and make sense of those things. Now you're being told, not for the first time, but in, it, there's a chorus saying, no, can't, we can't have it this way anymore. And so you, you, there's some dismantling that has to take place. You know, and so I can't imagine what that feels like, you know, and so that's what I have empathy for that the foundation is really cracked <laughs> and it, it's cracked and it don't look like it's coming back. Right. So it's like you have to. So what what do you do now? What's next? Yeah, hopefully it's not coming back. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do say wherever we go, there we are and understanding that history tells us something of who we are. So for me, it's not about an erasure of where we've been. I think we learn from that. We, we, we are products of where we've been. We are all products of what has come before. We are, we're products of what came 400 years ago, you know? When Christopher Columbus lost his way, right? <laughs> and discovered <laughs> here, you know, that actually changed, that changed the trajectory for everybody, Native people more than anybody, but it, it changed the trajectory for everybody. I would love to talk about environmental justice work and environmentalism. You know, the environmental justice movement <clears throat> was born largely out of a group of brown folks recognizing, that, saying that the mainstream environmental movement isn't recognizing you know, what's actually happening, particularly in poor communities and communities of color around the country, oftentimes cities. So things like the problems of, with asthma, rates of asthma or toxic waste dumps, these, and you know, brown fields, these, these things that seem to happen a lot in cities, the environmental, mainstream environmental movement doesn't seem to care about that. They're always talking about the parks and the mountains, you know. So, you know, I'm being very, I'm, I'm, this is a broad brushstroke, right? But that's in part where that movement come from. But here's the thing, and environmental justice for me has morphed over time. It's breathing and expanding and growing just as mainstream environmentalism is. I actually, I mean, in my view of it, it's all connected. <laughs> One doesn't exist without the other. It doesn't exist in isolation of the other. You know, black and brown people aren't only the bad things that happen to them in the environment. So if somebody is living in a city next to a toxic waste dump and dealing with the fallout from that, doesn't mean they care any less about that mountain, that beach, or that park. You actually know nothing about them to know that. You know, it just means that the way they have to prioritize their life looks differently than yours. But the idea that we couldn't actually work together, the idea that we couldn't address that complexity, for me, we have the capacity to do it. It's just the way we always try to simplify and get to the goal or the product. And I'm like, it's the process. And what does it mean when we open up that possibility that, you know, justice, I always, I, I mean, I love that quote from Cornel West, justice is love made public. You know, what is justice? And just connecting it to environment, it means looking at issues of equity and access and representation, who's seen and who's not, and who's engaged and who gets to participate in vision-making, who's actually present on boards and staff and gets to make those decisions, who's actually being recognized and valued and winning the awards and also getting some of those um, financial resources that a lot of the big environmental organizations get. What about a lot of those other smaller ones who've always been there, 
doing work within their communities. And actually, many of them have broad vision. You know, they can actually see, but no one's ever asked them before, okay. right? And so really, what are, the, what are the things we need to change to make that, you know, understanding that for me, they're, they're interrelated. And supporting yeah. one doesn't mean you're not supporting the other. I think that envir environmental justice has been a way to sort of segregate the environmental community too. That, okay, we're gonna do our diversity work with people of color. Let's pick this environment. Oh, <laughs> yes, this is the thing. I mean, talking about ghettoizing an idea, right? The, you know, any type of diversity, any type of difference, for me, it's not, it's not about value added. You actually have to, this is, it's integrated into everything. It's a way of thinking. And if it makes people, if it helps, I often use the term difference as opposed to di diversity. Because diversity, now we use it so much, it points to a very particular kind of difference. And just the idea of difference, how do we work across difference? What does it mean to consider difference in everything that we do within an organization, or even our mission statement? Are we aware of power? Because that's about power and privilege, the dynamics that are there. And we all have privilege. We all just don't have the same privilege in the same way at the same time. And so it just focuses us in a very particular way. Because the minute you say we're going to put it over here and it's about that, it tells me that you actually don't, a person doesn't really understand what it's about or isn't really interested in changing. This has been a thing I've been saying, if you are not uncomfortable right now doing this work, then you're not doing the work. That for me, you can put that at the top of your list. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if, you are un, if you are not uncomfortable, you are not doing the work because there is nothing about this that is comfortable. Yeah. And for those of us who've always been in it, it's never been comfortable. It doesn't mean there aren't moments of great joy and possibility and excitement and passion but what about this? Even having the conversation is not comfortable, you know, because there's risks. We are taking risks. And that's what this is about. Taking risks in order to gain. Not taking risks because you're afraid of losing something that was before. But that's what this moment is for me. And that's why I'm optimistic. It's like, you know what? If there was ever time, we can take a risk now. We should have done it before, but we can do it now. Yeah. We can take a risk in order to gain. And it's going to be messy it's going to be uncomfortable, but you know what? You're not going to be alone because there are a lot of people trying to do it. Well, the conversation may be uncomfortable, but you make it really fun too. So, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. <laughs> because I think it can be. You know, I think it, I think fun in that it can be. I like to be creative with how we think about it mm -hmm. and how you know what stories help us get there. I didn't think that I was going to tell you and your listeners about my. Meta fast metabolism, but actually that popped in my head. I'm going, it's actually a great metaphor, you know? So, so find those places in your life, you know, to, to really try to help understand it for yourself. We always end with a recommendation and you have already recommended to us Lovecraft Country on HBO. And is oh, there are. anything else that you, HBO Max? Uh, HBO on Sunday nights, Sunday night. Okay, excellent. Is there anything else that you would oh, to recommend? There's always things. I'll recommend your TED Talk and your book. Thank you. 
on the website, there's, um, there's other things I post up there regularly. You know, if you haven't seen the movie, it's a documentary, James Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro. It came oh, out a year or two ago. And I, the reason I bring it up is because that, what it encapsulates for me about America is just, he's so understood that, you know, there's a lie that we've told ourselves who we are, which actually does not deny the possibility of who we can be. And so for me, it's how do we confront some of the hard truths about ourselves in order to do the work we want to do. But environmentally, if I don't like to keep promoting myself, but the thing that might, people might find interesting is that a couple of weeks ago, you might remember that in the Washington Post, an article came out about John Muir and the Sierra Club and you know, the John Muir's racist. When that article came out, um, I got contacted by the great-great-grandson of John Muir, and we did a podcast. So Robert Hanna and myself, he'd asked me to do a podcast on uh, a conversation because I'm, I'm, I've been working on this idea of a one-woman show. What if I, if I was personally in conversation with John Muir? And I have some um, oh, thoughts about that. So podcast might be interesting to some folks because that yeah, well, I've found a conversation with people at the Sierra Club. There's, you know, there, you've got a lot of good people that are trying to think about this differently. Excellent. Well, I, I appreciate your time today, really, and your conversation. It's very meaningful to me and to us. Well, I appreciate you asking me. This is, this is what we got to do, right? We got to have the conversation. Thank you to Dr. Carolyn Finney for joining us in conversation today. The Cumberland River Compact recognizes and acknowledges the work our organization needs to do. We're actively having the conversations and doing the work to help us move forward, while also recognizing the foundation the environmental movement was built on. As we move into future episodes of our River Talks podcast, you will hear from other leaders working on the specific actions that address the ways we can build a more inclusive, equitable, and just environmental movement. Want to add your thoughts about this week's episode? Send us an email at rivertalks at cumberlandrivercompact.org or leave us a voice message at 615-933-8837. Until next time, I'm Katherine Price and hope you can join us for more River Talks.